notes. It'll be recorded in yeah. five different ways, just in case. She's got the, all the fail safes built in so we don't screw it up. <laughs> hey, listeners, this is Taylor. I got the privilege of interviewing our own Dr. Mary Newberger, the director for the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies, about her new book, Ingredients of Change, the History and Culture of Food in Modern Bulgaria. Sounds delicious. Take a listen and check it out. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, today we have a very special guest. We have director of the Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. That is not the only thing in her title, but Dr. Newberger, we're happy to have you on the show today to talk about your book. So yeah, we can go ahead and get started. Well, thanks for having me. This was really exciting. My book came out just this last spring, so I'm ready to share. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So the title of your book, Ingredients of Change, the History and Culture of Food in Modern Bulgaria. I guess my first question is, why food in Bulgaria? What drew you to this topic and what kind of motivated you to write this book? Well, I mean, I think this is something I explain in the introduction to the book. In many ways, I think food brought me to studying Bulgaria in the first place. I had an opportunity to go to Bulgaria for the first time in 1993 to study Bulgarian. And it was a little bit of a testing the waters, like, you know, how interested am I in this country, in this culture, in investing time in studying the language? Where do I want to focus my historical studies? So I went to Bulgaria and also traveled throughout the region, the Balkan region, and I was enamored by the cultures, by the beauty of the region, but also by the food. I mean, it was the summer, and so, of course, everything, there was tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and all these wonderful fresh produce. But I was also just enamored by the kinds of dishes, like the obvious Turco-Ottoman, Persian influences on the food in the Balkans, which was very different from other parts of Eastern Europe. So I was interested in that, how historical influences also affect everyday culture, things like food. And it was beyond just being able to eat the food. I I was also interested in the phenomenon of national cuisines throughout the region, which seemed to be variations on a theme. So in whichever country you were, whether it was Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, Macedonia, there were claims to national dishes, but the dishes would be literally the same or a slight variation of a dish that the next country over had. So it seemed to me to kind of exemplify that diversity of cultures um, within the Balkans that, that are connected in a lot of ways and the same in a lot of ways because of historical legacies, particularly of the Ottoman Empire, but yet are coded as national and separate and distinct. So that was just an interesting theme that I was thinking about from early on studying the region, but then of course I went all kinds of different directions and eventually made it back to food as an academic topic more recently. I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on what does studying food reveal about a people other that other aspects may not, like history or culture or religion? Like what about food reveals something special about the Bulgarian people? 
Well, actually, I think studying food is helpful to understanding precisely those things you just listed, actually, religion, history, culture. So it becomes a really nice window or a looking glass into all kinds of other things. It becomes a different way of looking at Bulgarian history, a different lens for looking at Bulgarian history that's maybe different from just looking at straight up politics or religion. Those things become refracted through food policies or, I mean, I look at policies, of course, but I'm also interested in what I call the bioimaginary, which is how people thought about food. How did food culture transform as people thought about food in different ways over the period that I'm looking at? Not just thought about food in different ways, but new foods were actually introduced into the diet and became important in the diet. And one of the big changes I look at is a shift from purely a religious lens way of thinking about and regulating the diet, and namely through feast and fast, to a scientific one where food science in the 20th century becomes a really important factor in thinking about what people are eating, what people should be eating, and how coming not just from the state, but from different kinds of elites, food scientists and others, what we should be eating and how that made it into the everyday diet and cuisine, along with the introduction of different foods, new techniques, and also different cultural influences. I talked about the Ottoman influence, but there was also Russian influence. There was Habsburg influence. There was a Mediterranean influence. There was all kinds of other influences that made their way into Bulgarian and Balkan cuisines. I don't, I, I don't have much experience <laughs> eating Balkan food. And so hearing you bring out these, the, these evolutions, not only before the Cold War, the Soviet Union became such a big influence in this area, but the relationship not only, say, like with bread. I mean, you were talking about how meat became a very important staple within the diet that may not have existed or had the same importance before, before the communist period. And so I, I guess let's start to get into these evolutions because your book focuses specifically on, I, you, you hint on the context before and after, but it focuses mostly on the communist period and what, that, what those changes brought about in Bulgaria. Let's start with meat. I thought that was one of the more interesting chapters. Could you talk a little bit about maybe that evolution of introducing it into the diet? I think the phrase that you used, there were two phrases that I thought were interesting. One was the bioimaginary, this idea of building bodies for socialism, healthy bodies to support this socialist idea, but then also the, the Communist Party wanting to give its people the socialist good life. And so I was wondering if you could talk about these two concepts and maybe the relationship of meat. Then I want to get into how vegetarian might have been like a dissident level experience almost. So if you could maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the meat chapter is my favorite chapter by far. In some ways, it exemplifies and ties into a lot of the other arguments made in the other chapters. But basically, I look at how prior to the communist period, people ate meat, but it was a very small part of the diet of most of the population. And that's just because it's expensive to eat meat. You know, most people, like not just in Bulgaria, but worldwide sort of peasant cultures, which Bulgaria was a majority rural peasant culture prior to the communist period, ate mainly grain diets. And so there was a lot of critique of that starting for sure in the interwar period among Bulgarian scientists and intellectuals that eating just a grain-based diet was why Bulgaria was so backwards. 
was one of the explanations. Now, not all of those thinkers wanted to shift to a meat-based diet. We can talk about that in a minute, but they definitely wanted more protein in the Bulgarian diet. And for a lot of people, meat, the meat-based diets that had already emerged in the West seemed to be both exemplify the kind of higher socioeconomic status and kind of good life in the West, but also perhaps were the actual drivers of progress in the West because people were eating meat and that much protein was driving their kind of energy and their ability to build more robust societies. And so since these arguments percolated in the interwar period, the communists really took those and ran with them. I mean, the same kind of arguments were being circulated in the Soviet Union in the same period. And when Bulgaria entered the Eastern Bloc after World War II, they became policy. Food science superseded religion. And in fact, they were very critical of the religious feast and fast diet, which meant that not only no meat, but no dairy products, no animal products were being consumed for large parts of the year. And so this was seen as a problem. It was seen as based on superstition. It seemed to go against science. And instead, they wanted a consistent diet where protein was being consumed consistently. And while other proteins also made it into that, meat was kind of the gold standard. So they need people needed to eat a lot of meat, both to build socialism, to have this kind of hearty source of protein, but also because they wanted to Communism was not just about the stick, it was about the carrot. It was about attracting people into this system. It was about showing people that this was the best system that would provide them the good life. And so providing meat on a regular basis was part of that providing of a good life. This this kind of provision of consumer goods, including food and also services. So food in restaurants, you know, not just in the market was definitely part of the communist project of showing people that they had a better system, better than what had preceded the communist period. So even the lower class populations now could have meat on a regular basis. Because prior to the communist period, of course, the elite, there had been all kinds of studies and that had shown that elite populations were eating significantly more meat than the lower class populations. So these studies reveal two things. One is the social dynamic within Bulgaria could be mapped onto meat consumption and the differential between Bulgaria and more developed, that I'm going to put in quotes, Western countries, could also be shown as correlating with meat consumption. So that became important in the arguments to increase meat production and consumption in Bulgaria in the communist period, and they largely succeeded in doing that. And then what was the impact? So you, so you talked about like this dynamic between the elites having, I guess, access or having the ability to eat large amounts of meat. And then the, the I guess, the working class, this was kind of a new, a, a new idea or a new thing for them to be able to have access to meat on a regular basis. Did that have any impact on social relations, on any, anything like on the ground level? Like what changes came about within like the larger population? You mean in the communist period? Yeah, in the communist period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I would say I don't want to reduce it just to meat, but there was a way in which a major transformation was happening in the communist period. And there was a a real possibility of social mobility for huge swaths of the population, rural and urban working class, 
to not just make it into factory jobs or collective farms, but also to be running those factories and collective farms and to be, you know, entering into new jobs with the new state as, you know, kind of now the new sort of intelligentsia in a sense, or also just the kind of administrative class. So that mobility definitely was tied to different ways of eating because a lot of these rural populations before, I mean, I mentioned they didn't eat a lot of meat. Part of it was because if you want to eat meat in the countryside, you have to kill an animal. And if you kill an animal, it's gone. <laughs> I mean, it's not sustainable in that way. And that animal may have also been producing milk in some cases or other kind of products. So you have to have a lot of animals to be able to kill one and eat it. And so that's why there was a limited basis of eating meat in the countryside. In the city, it's different because along with new kind of production, more production of meat, there was also new technologies for storing and preserving meat that made, you know, particularly curing and making of sausages, which wasn't that yeah. common in Bulgaria <laughs> before this period, took off in this period. And there was just more possibility for making meat available to wider swaths of the population. And I would say, you know, for a lot of people, I mean, not everyone believed that the communist system was better, but for a lot of people, their lives did improve. And a lot of people were brought into the project and believed in this new ideology and system, in part because their lives improved in everyday ways, like what kind of food was available and what they were able to eat on a daily basis. So in many ways, I do think it kind of bolstered the project, at least through, you know, the initial decades of the period. And then I think towards the later parts of the period, a person that you bring up and talk about is Lumila Shikova. And I, I wanted you to talk about her importance. I mean, I, I believe she identified as a vegetarian and why maybe this, not so much a dissident in like a political sense, but but why did you write about her in, in this chapter in, in the broader context of, of what meat meant for the Bulgarian people during the communist period? Yeah, one of the things I wanted to bring in with talking about her and some other developments under late, late socialism was that a lot of people think of the communist period as kind of monolithic, unchanging perhaps, or also being a system in which there were not differing views or debates going on. I mean, newer work on communism has shown all of these things, and people have been able to start to really map out the, the kind of periodization of change throughout this period, which was very different in each sort of communist country. Like some countries liberalized and others became more hardline, for example, under late socialism. Bulgaria was a little bit of both, which is kind of interesting. And Zhivkova was important. She was the daughter of Todorzhivkov, who ruled Bulgaria for most of the period, essentially from about 1956 through 1989. And Zhivkova was his daughter, but also kind of the first lady, especially by the 1970s. Her mother had died young, and Zhivkova emerged by the you know by the time she was an adult and had been educated. She emerged as a really important figure in Bulgaria, essentially the minister of culture and a member of the Politburo, who had a lot of resources and a lot of power within Bulgaria. And her ideas were very different from her father's, but also different from many of the other you know, hardline communists um, within Bulgaria. But she had a lot of influence too among communist elite. So it kind of shows some of the fissures within communist society to talk about her and how those were reflected, for example, in the meat policy 
were that she was a bit openly a vegetarian, that during this period in which she was essentially minister of culture, you had suddenly the publication of a lot of more sort of vegetarian cookbooks openly. You also have vegetarian recipes being articulated and even discussion of the feast and fast tradition being published and talked about an open advocacy for vegetarianism among a couple of scholars. And so that was a real break from the past. It didn't really change the policy of meat production <laughs> um, and the fact that a lot of people were kind of meat hooked by this time and not going to stop eating meat. But nevertheless, it provided an alternative way of thinking about meat. And that way, interestingly, was about the fact that a more sustainable society and perhaps a healthier body could be built with vegetarianism. And that ran, you know, directly counter to the idea that meat was required for progress and that there was one way of thinking about progress. And that was through more and more consumption of meat and also more and more consumption of consumer goods. So it was also kind of a rethinking of what the good life meant and what, you know, socialism meant or communism meant, because by the 1970s, a lot of socialist thinkers or politicians we're talking more and more. I mean, many had already abandoned the project, just to be clear. There was a lot more sort of fissures and issues of legitimacy, but discussing like what it meant to reach this kind of communist utopia that they were talking about. What did that mean? And for those who were saying the good life had this very, in some ways, consumer basis, not as consumerist as in the West, but nevertheless, it was attached to providing consumer goods. Others were saying that, no, that is not what socialism is. You know, we need to look more to thinking about sustainability. We can't be embracing consumerism. That's what the West does. That's what bourgeois, the bourgeois in the West do. So there was a lot of debates around that. And I meet got in, in its own way, fit into those fissures and debates of late socialism. I think this would be a good time to then bring in the Western influence of, of some of the other food products that you talk about in the book. And during this period, the, the communist project, just not in Bulgaria, but across the Eastern Bloc and in the Soviet Union, was gauging success based on basically as a comparison to the West. And so these consumer goods and the availability of to, to buy luxury goods was an indication of whether not so much in a sense of how well the states were doing, but basically trying to determine how happy these people were. And so I think you talk about how um, wine, and I think in specifically, was one of the interesting influences is because you talk about the missionaries, the Western missionaries that came over saw Bulgaria as producing a lot of wine and that they saw that this was another aspect maybe that it indicated that it was backwards, that it wasn't producing or effectively producing a good that contributed to society. So I was wondering, let's if we wanted to pivot to the wine chapter, talking a little bit about the evolution and the relationship with wine before the communist period, how it changed in the communist period, and maybe even where it is today if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's a long and complicated history. And um, the missionary piece, you know, for all of these chapters, I like, I try to do a real survey of the pre-communist period. But like you said, my focus is really on the communist period to see what that transformation was. But in order to get at that, you have to see what happened before, 
And then at least to some extent what happened after, but I honestly, that would be a whole nother book. So I don't talk too much about post-socialism. I do talk about the immediate post-socialist period. But for wine, Bulgaria had a really interesting relationship to wine, which had been really a food. It had been considered not so much a luxury good or even necessarily an intoxicant, although it is, but more like food. Like most people produced wine, at least they would have a small amount of grapes and vineyards on their little plots, at least. And by most people, I mean most Christians, because that wouldn't have been true of the Muslim populations. And so wine was consumed regularly, even for breakfast in many parts of this region. It was also produced by monasteries and they would sell it. They would produce wine as both for their own consumption and to distribute. Well, when American missionaries who many were non-denominational, some were Methodist, who came to the Balkans starting in the 19th century when it was still under Ottoman rule, And Bulgaria became a big focus of their activities, actually. They worked primarily among Bulgarians and Armenians, and also in Syria to a lesser extent within the Balkans. They were appalled (laughs) to see that not only were people drinking alcohol every day, because, you know, many of them, the preponderance believed in temperance and hard work and not drinking. And these kind of things for them were connected to their idea of religion but also their idea of, I guess, modernity and progress and development, which they were trying to bring to the region as well. So this was a big explanation for them. I mean, this is, you can see this is kind of a recurring theme. It's trying to explain why Bulgaria is so backwards. Either outsiders trying to explain that, or insiders who also appropriate those ideas coming from the outside about how backwards they are, trying to also explain it. So these missionaries were like, this is appalling. You know, you're drinking wine for breakfast. And even the priests are producing it and distributing it, and in some cases, selling it. And so there were some converts to Protestantism within Bulgaria. There was a kind of planting of many of these ideas among Bulgarians coming from this kind of Protestant, you know, external impetus which actually made it even more unpopular among a lot of Bulgarians, many of them who said, wait, so in order to convert, I have to quit drinking? Forget it. (laughs) Um, It was kind of a deal killer for some people. And it was seen as coming from the outside, even though actually within those temperance movements, people traced back earlier homegrown kind of anti-alcohol thought through, for example, the Bogomils and some of the earlier Bulgarian and even some 19th century figures. So they did also domesticate those ideas for themselves. And as I mentioned, in the interwar period, there were some pretty robust anti-drinking kind of groups within Bulgaria, the Tolstoyan movement, also the White Brotherhoods. There were all kinds of different people who also saw, began to see alcohol as poison. But for the bulk of the population, it was just really natural to be consuming wine and to a lesser but growing extent, also rakia, which is a hard liquor. And But under communism, it changes from, for sure, there's, there's a lot of discouragement from drinking wine for breakfast and for having it be a food. And instead, there's a shift to let's separate work from leisure and let's make sure the workday is for work and let's push consumption of things like alcohol into leisure time. So then it becomes a reward for your workday. I mean, this is kind of you know, in many ways, how we think of it in the United States and Western cultures. 
instead of something you're doing throughout the workday, which is going to destroy your work ethic. There was a lot of effort to separate it, but also eventually through the course of the period to elevate wine to kind of more of an implement or more of a sort of accoutrement of the good life. That is to refine the production of it, because a lot of this homemade wine was just not good. I mean, people, you know, they sort of threw it in a barrel and hope for the best. But to bring in more techniques of, you know, producing better wine and different varietals were brought in and it was labeled and it was branded and it was exported even largely within the block, but elsewhere. So it really connoisseurship came into it. And so wine transformed into something, a deserved leisure product instead of, in theory, you know, sort of a daily part of the diet. And also more, of course, hard liquor, not just rakia, but cognac and vodka and other hard liquors were produced, dessert wines. You know, there was a lot of kind of variety put into that, which was also for leisure consumption and and export. So it really transformed. But I think unlike, I would say, meat or anything else I talk about, the anti-alcohol movement really is also at the, in the same period that you have this kind of sewership developing in this attempt to create a separate leisure space and time and consumption patterns, you have a distinct anti-alcohol movement coming from the state. And it was also influenced by this in some ways coming out of the Soviet Union, which was doing this in the same time and throughout the region. And so you have a really simultaneous, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the meat story, but in many ways, the anti-alcohol lobby was much stronger than say a vegetarian, you know, you have like that really didn't become, you know, this large scale kind of thing in the same way the anti-alcohol movement was. So they actually had a lot of resources to produce periodicals, books, pamphlets, exhibits, clubs. So it became a much more robust attempt to get people to stop drinking. I will not say it was successful. Yeah. (laughs) But nevertheless, it also shows, I think, a little bit like the meat story, but how complicated and and not sort of monolithic or uniform the food story was at any given time in Bulgaria, how it changed over time, and how particularly under late socialism, you see these sort of competing narratives and even competing sort of interest groups or lobbies, both, but both supported by the state, unlike, you know, in the United States, where we might have more of a grassroots movement doing a certain thing, or this bubbling up from civil society. Here, this is really state supported on on both sides, both the production and the anti-consumption, which, you know, seems to be a big contradiction. So if there was a push by the state to a more tempered consumption of alcohol within Bulgaria, did, were they exporting wine for for this? Or was it, did it, like, I, I think I'm trying to like wrap my head around like why we would push production, make it as effective as possible, but we're not going to drink it as much internally. So were the, what was the, I guess, economic effects of these decisions? Interestingly, I mean, it was just different people. So you had the kind of wine, you know, kind of industry, which was again, state supported. And they had their quotas, which didn't change. They had their ideas of success, which was more and more and more production, as it tended to be under communism. And also, there was an imperative to be be profitable in some way. And profitable just meant like producing more resources so you could grow even larger. It didn't mean profits for CEOs or anything like that. But nevertheless, like being a successful industry. 
So their orders never changed. They were never told to produce less. Their, their measure of success never changed. And so they were just a separate group of people at the same time, you know, you have over here, mostly like health professionals and others whose charge was to reduce drinking. And in fact, those same people would say things like, well, why do we keep producing all of this then? (laughs) Because we could control that if we wanted to. So there was also exports and exports were going up, but it wasn't at the expense of, you know, making it available to the population. Very late under socialism, as you probably know, and this happened kind of more in Russia, it did to some extent in Bulgaria under Gorbachev's influence. Gorbachev went after production in a way that no other Soviet leader had. This was actually kind of catastrophic for the for the Soviet economy. People even argue that it may have brought down communism because um, not only was the state getting fewer revenues, in their case from vodka, but people were upset and hated Gorbachev because now they were waiting in line for vodka. It was pretty catastrophic there. Wasn't catastrophic in Bulgaria in the same way, but there was a big impact on the wine industry because they did rip out a lot of vineyards under Gorbachev in the late 80s. I don't think it brought down communism there, but it kind of shows you that there there is a really we have to carefully periodize like what was happening over time and look at the effects of it in different periods of time under different leaders and in different states of the Eastern Bloc because it was a really different landscape depending on where you were. I mean, I was in the Soviet Union in 89, and I remember there being lines for vodka. I mean, you couldn't just go to the store and buy vodka unless you went to the dollar stores. There was no vodka. And there was these huge lines for it, and it was rationed. But the ration seemed like a lot to me. It was like a liter a week. You know, And I'm going, I can't drink a liter a week. (laughs) (laughs) And they were also rationing sugar because they didn't want people to make their own. So there was still this concept of homebrew, you know, happening there. And also in Bulgaria that the state tried to regulate, but wasn't really able to. You know, honestly, I for all of these chapters as I wrote them, I thought this chapter could be its own book. And I thought, you know, in some ways I'm just scratching the surface of this. There's so much more. And there there is some really good food history, food scholarship happening in Bulgaria right now. But I hope, you know, more people will kind of take up the mantle of food studies and food history because... It's really just in its infancy, particularly within East European studies. In Russian studies, there's a lot more that's happened, but a lot less within Eastern Europe. Yeah, I, I, I want to take a step back and maybe address the the academic approach to to studying food and food culture. What made you decide to look at bread, to look at meat, yogurt, tomatoes and peppers and wine? Like, are there other foods in Bulgarian diet that, that could be explored further that were not included? And then also getting the stories of what these foods mean to people. I, could you talk a little bit about the process? Like who, like, who did you go and talk to? How did you find out to choose these, these five aspects to focus on? And, and maybe your process in writing the, the book. Well, I mean, honestly, it was a little bit messy. And when I first started writing, I wasn't going to write about each ingredient. I I wrote a number of pieces that were more looking at different periods of time, you know, in Bulgarian kind of food history. I wrote about the 19th century. I wrote about the communist period. I was kind of just pulling different sources that I found that I was interested in and trying to build 
off of those sources. But as I went, and so I was thinking all of those pieces I wrote would be pieces of the book. And then later I realized, nope, I think I'm going to do it in a different way. (laughs) And so it was a little bit like starting over, but I had all the ideas that I had developed from writing those different pieces and I could pull relevant things from that, that work into this work focusing on ingredients. I think part of it was I read a few histories of the history of bread, of American bread, for example. Um, written by someone named Aaron Bobro-Strain. And I was really inspired by that book. Um, I started finding a few other, there was histories of milk and yogurt, like either global histories or in many cases, just more U.S. I mean, really U.S. food history and food studies, and also to a certain extent European. Um, There's just so much work that's been done. It's such a rich field that I was just delving into that field and looking for inspiration in terms of approach. And so I found those really compelling, those, those stories where there was a focus on one kind of food group or commodity. Or, and I had done a book on tobacco in which it was organized more chronologically, but it was organized around one commodity over time. And so I started to realize that when I pulled apart, started to think about those stories separately, when I started to think about the history of bread separately from the history of meat, even though they're also connected and re- they refer, the chapters refer back to each other in a lot of ways, because as I mentioned, it was a shift, for example, from a bread-based diet to a, more of a meat-based diet or bringing meat diet, that there was a whole different way of thinking, like that there was a way in which I could really crystallize my thoughts and say something quite different, focusing on that one item, that it became its own sort of rich story. It was just an easier way to tell the story and I think a more enlightening one. So, I mean, you know, I started with meat, I believe. Yeah, I wrote the meat chapter first because I had read all this compelling stuff about vegetarians in Bulgaria, and I got really excited about that. And from there, I realized there's a bread story. There's a, you know, produce story. You didn't mention I also have a chapter, but I decided to do it on both tomatoes and peppers, which I realized were both really kind of recent to the Bulgarian diet. They were introduced from... I think you, I think you, in quotes, the new world. So they were, they were a import from outside of, of outside of the region to introduce, I think, the sweet, the sweet peppers and um, the tomatoes into the diet as a more of like, I guess, like a nutritional supplement for vitamins and, and whatnot that they bring. We can dive into that in, in a little bit. I want you to finish your thought on, on your process. But yeah, I, I did think that story was really interesting of, of the introduction of the, of those two, of those two items. Yeah, and I guess in in looking at these different sort of thinking broadly across the topic, I began to try and focus on those areas where I saw the biggest transformation. And of course, there's other, there's definitely other stories. You know, I could have talked talked about. I was thinking like a whole chapter on honey would have been cool, or sweetener. You know, a whole chapter on sort of spice or garlic. I think there's a lot. There's a lot more one could do, but these. I just had more material and could kind of build a more compelling story. And they seemed to be more central to what I was interested in, which in many ways was less cuisine. I'm interested in the way cuisine was kind of written into this transformational change and important to it and how cuisine itself transformed. But it seemed to me that it was these basics, like if you change the amount of meat you eat, then that becomes foundational to changes in the cuisine. So in pursuing these different topics in terms of research, it was quite complicated. But in many ways, 
it wasn't so much an interview-based kind of project. It was much more of a written material-based project, but it required talking to a lot of people along the way, of course, as well. But it was fun because it was pulling from a lot of different sources. I mean, I did archival work, but because in some ways these I covered such a large period of time and so many different sort of areas, the archival work would have been, I relied less on that, although I do kind of weave it in when possible. And I looked at a lot more printed sources because in some ways I found that more compelling. Archival sources are things that, you know, that do point to kind of policy decisions and shifts. I was really interested, for example, in the common turn discussions about what would be produced and who was consuming what and kind of comparisons across the block and other things like this. But I was also just really interested in what people were saying in cookbooks, what people were saying in sort of newspaper articles, what people were saying in books, what people were saying in the kind of sources that circulated widely to the population. And so it was really a combination of, of kind of, you know, the kind of behind the curtain archive sources, which, you know, I went deeper, particularly on some of the figures I was interested in and looked at their own kind of papers and in some cases, memoirs and things like that. But I also liked the color and texture of these other kind of printed circulating sources and, and kind of how those filled out the story in many ways. I've got, I, this might be my final question, but it's a very important one. What is your favorite Bulgarian food? That's a hard one because I love it all so much. But I would say I'm actually more into the vegetable dishes there than some, I mean, even though the meat is also delicious, but I really love, for example, some of the dips like lutenica, which I write about in my book, which is a pepper and tomato based kind of dip. Although I also talk about how that, that recipe and that changed over time, but it kind of has this concentration of that red kind of flavor, umami kind of flavor uh, with garlic, you know, and in fact, I buy it in the local, you can buy it here in uh, Austin at Phoenicia and in some of the other kind of local grocery, ethnic groceries. And it's amazing that I can get that same flavor here because that stuff, you know, it's made to be preserved and it does really well in a preserved form. So that's delicious. And it's a taste of Bulgaria that I can have on a weekly basis here, 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 here in Austin. Austin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also like the famous Shopska Salata and that um, is cut up tomatoes, cucumber, sometimes onion and pepper with basically feta cheese, although they don't call it feta cheese, they call it sirene, and it's just grated over the top, a whole bunch of it. And that's what people eat all summer in Bulgaria and um, when when everything's fresh and in season. Maybe people eat it more off-season now too. Uh, that was, you know, as some food historians have shown, it was a it was something invented in the communist period by Balkan Tourist, which is the tourist agency. But it's delicious and it has that salty kind of brine, white brine cheese flavor. You don't even need dressing. I mean, you can splash vinegar and oil on it if you want, but you don't need it because it's just juicy and it's got that flavor of that cheese. And, you know, if I can get expensive tomatoes from Whole, <laughs> from Whole Foods <laughs> or Central Market and a good cucumber, you can buy Bulgarian feta here and make something that's pretty close to what you can get in Bulgaria. So all that's making me hungry. I was going to say, that's making me hungry. And I think that you should have your grad students over for dinner one night and cook us Bulgarian food. <laughs> yeah, we can have a big old shopska, some lutenica. 
and go from there. There we go. Yeah. Okay. My final, final, final question is readers of this book, if you could sum it up or if there's one big takeaway that you want them to have from this book, what would it be? I guess it's our own food system is something that, you know, I think many scholars would say is in crisis. I mean, I think in the U.S. more than anywhere else, but it's a it's it's not a sustainable system in many ways. And I think we need to think deeper about what we eat on a daily basis and what it means and how it's changed over time and whether those changes are sustainable or not. That's kind of just, you know, for all of us to think about both in the U.S. context and a global context, looking at other places, looking at transformations in other places, but also just, I guess, understanding that food and other aspects of our everyday culture are as important to history as anything else, as wars, as politics, as all these other kind of bigger structures, and in some ways more important, because that affects our everyday in a way, you know, whoever's in the White House maybe doesn't or whoever's in the halls of power or wherever you live doesn't. And so I think it's important for us to understand food in its historical context and and within various historical contexts. So I think food history and food studies does a lot to make us think about food in new ways that I think we see the really deeper significance of it. All right, Dr. Newberger. Well, with that, I wanted to thank you again for joining us. It's been an honor and a privilege talking to you about your book. And I am ready for the next one. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Again, the book is called Ingredients of Change. It's published by Cornell Press, and it's available on Amazon. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversation is changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in the program represent the views of the host and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at SlavXRadio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 